Well, man has invented all kinds of ingenious devices to measure all kinds of things. So there's devices to measure mass and volume, speed, the pressure in the atmosphere, uh, even the passing of time. We have the clock up here. But how do you measure the moral state of a society? What metric do we have? Is there a reliable metric to measure the moral state of a society? Something that we can point to as a clear and accurate indication of the moral health or strength or weakness of a given people or society. Well, John Murray says this, that nothing shows the moral bankruptcy of a people or of a generation more than disregard for the sanctity of human life. I think he's right. I'll repeat it. Nothing shows the moral bankruptcy of a people or of a generation more than disregard for the sanctity of human life. And if this is true, then the moral bankruptcy of our present generation is nearly complete and absolute. Now, when you hear those words, sanctity of life, it's likely that a couple issues of our day come to your mind. Abortion and so-called euthanasia, literally good death. And I'll just say, we're not going to talk about this now, but those two terms, both of them, I think, are inadequate, abortion and euthanasia, because they more or less cover up the true sense of what is involved and that is the ending of life, either in its first stages or at some other stage, often in old age. Now, God willing, we will get to those subjects, abortion, euthanasia, and other things that you think of when you hear about the sanctity of life, possibly next week. But first, we need to be clear about the biblical basis for the sanctity of life. And what we mean by that is the sacredness of life, in particular human life, the sacredness, the worth, the value, the dignity of life, and a sanctity that calls for reverence, a sanctity that calls for protection and respect, and even, as we will see, for penalty. Now, I know that most of you are very clear on your convictions in regard to this. And you might wish that we just pass by the biblical foundations and move on to the burning issues of our day. But I'm gonna ask you to be patient and I trust that as we turn to the scriptures and in particular in Genesis, the opening chapters of Genesis, that we will be helped and strengthened in our conviction to remind ourselves of the biblical foundation of the sanctity of life. And then we will be better prepared to meet with the issues of our day. Now, as we do this, we must eventually turn our attention to the death penalty for murder, which penalty God ordained. He ordained it, and as an enduring institution not to be abolished in this life. So somewhat ironically, we are, we're going to begin our thinking about the sanctity of life with the reality of sin and its wages, which is death. 
So let's begin, and I would encourage you to have your Bible open. Uh, This is going to be fairly brief, and uh, if you're just joining us, uh, if you're visiting with us, we're using a book by a man named John Murray called Principles of Conduct. I believe it was written back in 1958, but very helpful. And if you want to dig into more of the particulars of this foundation, pick up John Murray's book and, and read on the sanctity of life. So let's do a brief survey of the biblical foundations for the sanctity of life. And we begin before the fall. And as we're looking at the scriptures, we will see that there's no clear reference to the sanctity of life before the fall of man. But what we do see is that it's definitely implied by the threatened punishment in Genesis chapter 2. So what was that threatened punishment? You remember that God put man in the garden. He said, you may freely eat of all of these trees, and yet he threatened punishment if they would eat of one tree in particular. So look at Genesis 2 and verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is the threatened punishment, death. And as we think about this, this at least implies the sanctity of life. How precious and how valuable must life be if the punishment for rebellion against God is the forfeiting of that life? You see how it implies how valuable it is? This was meant to be the strongest possible discouragement to keep man from sinning. You will forfeit nothing less than life itself, God is saying, if you rebel against me and sin by taking this fruit. So we learn at least here that death is not normal, even though in this life after the fall, we would say death is normal. We all expect, unless the Lord returns, that we're going to die. We have all had some kind of contact with death, but we have to remember death is not normal. That's not the normal state. Death is not a natural thing. It is an evil thing. So we can never speak of the sanctity of death, even to put those words together. We, we, we cannot speak of that. We speak of the sanctity of life, the sanctity of life. And so as we look at this threatened punishment, which punishment did come about because man sinned, as we look at this, we see more clearly that life truly is sacred in contrast with the evil of death. So that's before the fall. There's no clear reference to the sanctity of life, but we we see it implied there in the threatened punishment. You shall surely die. Now, after the fall, what is the first recorded sin? After the fall of man, after the garden, the first recorded sin. It's murder. It was Cain's brutal murder of his brother Able. Now, do you think that that was the first sin after the fall? Certainly not. So I think it tells us something about the gravity and the seriousness, the heinousness of this sin of murder, of taking another's life wrongfully 
that this is the first sin that is recorded after the fall. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4, we have there the record, of course, of Cain's murder of Abel. But what I want us to look at in particular is God's response to this, which will underscore for us the sanctity of life and the gravity of this crime. So chapter 4, we read verses 10 to 12. And God said to him, to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. Now Cain says that this punishment, there in verse 13, you see he says, this is greater than I can bear. It's greater than I can bear, says Cain. But could Cain say that the punishment did not fit the crime? He couldn't say that. Cain could not say that God was overreacting to this sin of murder. Certainly not. If we compare the curse upon Cain, look again at verse 11. Compare this with the curse that is pronounced on Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis. And if we do this, we will see, in the words of Murray, an intensification of the curse. So in chapter 3, after the fall, the curse pronounced upon Adam was in these words, God said, cursed is the ground for your sake. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Look then at Genesis 4.11, where he says to Cain, you are cursed from the earth, or you are cursed from the ground. And this could be translated here, you are more cursed than the earth, more cursed than the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. So there's an intensification of the curse that is pronounced upon Cain for his sin of murder. So we're just, we're pointing out these things that highlight for us the gravity of this offense and also the sanctity of life. Murray concludes from this, this response of God to the murder of Abel, he concludes that the sanctity of life is clearly established here, as well as God's judgment on any such assaults upon life. Now, as we read on, we find something remarkable and even surprising here in Genesis 4, we find that God puts what Murray calls a halo of sanctity even around the life of the murderer, Cain. So look at verse 15. The Lord says to Cain, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. How do we make sense of that? 
What is God doing? Is, is he showing favor to this murderer? I don't think so. I think Murray gets it exactly right as he's explaining this halo of sanctity that God has put even around the murderer. He explains it this way. He says, life is so sacred that even the life of the murderer is to be respected. It is not to be wantonly or ruthlessly taken away. Crime is not to be punished by crime. So life is so sacred that even the life of the murderer is to be respected. Now let's move forward to chapter 6 and look at the conditions before the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, before the flood, what we find is that things have gone from bad to worse. As man is multiplied on the earth and is filling the earth, what else is filling the earth? Evil. And we find here in Genesis 6, the depravity and corruption of mankind on full display. And we read some of the most tragic words in all of the Bible in Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6, where we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. What were God's summary charges, if we can put it that way? What were his summary charges as he's looking at mankind, and he's looking at this depravity and wickedness of man? He summarizes his charges against mankind in two ways. You can look at the text there. Corruption and violence. Corruption and violence are the summary charges here. Look at verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. So corruption and violence, the earth is filled with violence at this point. And certainly violence would include a great many cases of Cain's sin, of brutal murder. So we need to understand that was the condition of the world before the flood, full of violence. And we might say, as Murray does, that the earth was filled with the desecration of life's sanctity, filled with the desecration of life's sanctity, and this brought about God's judgment in the flood. Again, this underscores the sanctity of life, that this great judgment, the flood, was brought about in large measure by violence filling the earth. Now, after the flood, after the flood, we have an amazing testimony of the grace of God. God's grace toward mankind. He promises never again. This is in chapter 8. So turn with me there to Genesis chapter 8, the end of chapter 8. 
God makes a gracious promise. A gracious promise. He says that he's not going to curse the ground for man's sake ever again. This is in verse 21. And then he also says that he will not destroy every living thing. Genesis 8, 21. And why? Is it because the earth would never again be filled with violence? Is it because man would no longer be described in those words that we read where, where the intents of their thought, only evil continually. That's not the case. So what explains this promise that God has made? It's only his grace. And in fact, if you have the new King James, you, you won't see this as easily. If you have the King James, or I know some of you have the ESV, you will see this. But we read... There in verse 21, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. We, we would probably better translate that for instead of although. So here God is giving a reason for why he has made this promise, this gracious promise. It's because man is is continually going to be showing his natural depravity. So I will not curse the ground again. I will not destroy every living thing again because or for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we, we have to remember the conditions now. We see in our own day, do we not, violence filling the earth. And certainly if it were not for the grace of God, and for his mercy, for this promise, we could have been wiped out again and again throughout history for the same things that man was originally wiped out. So we need to appreciate here this gracious promise. Now, in accordance with this gracious promise that God has made in Genesis 8, we find that after the flood, he, in, in Murray's words, makes provision for the safeguarding and enhancement of life. Because God knows that violence is still going to fill the earth. He makes provision for the safeguarding and enhancement of life. And among these provisions is the protection of human life. And that protection is first from animals. So look, look at Genesis 9. In Genesis 9-2, we see that God actually instills in animals a fear and dread of man. In order to protect man, we know obviously not entirely, from vicious and deadly attacks from animals. And the fear of you and the dread of you, says God, shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. But we further see this provision of God for the protection of human life from animals further on in verse 5. Surely for your life, your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it. So God demands a reckoning from every animal that takes a human life. 
Again, underscoring how valuable our life is in the sight of God, the sanctity of life. But what we want to focus on in particular is that God makes provision for the protection of human life against other humans. Verse five, so not only will he require from the hand of every beast, but he says from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And we see here, and this maybe is the text that you think of first, when you think of the sanctity of life. We see how highly God values our life. He declares that murder must be avenged. And notice, by man, by man it must be avenged. The reason for this, for requiring the death penalty is what? That man is created in the image of God. For in the image of God, he made man. There is the reason given. Now this, of course, takes us back to Genesis 1, where we see the creation account. And if you read it carefully, this really comes out powerfully, how unique man is, and that God has made man and set him above the creation, all other living creatures. So you have the fifth and the six days in which God made the living creatures. And as you read about how God made the sea creatures, the birds of the air, all of the animals, the living creatures that are on the land, as you read this, the language that's used is that they are all made according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind. And then God says, let us make man according to our likeness. Not according to their kind, but to the likeness of God in God's image. So we see that man alone has this unique privilege that he has been crowned in this way, made in the image of God. Now, as we think about this, and this is really the most important thing, as we consider all of these issues in the coming days, Lord willing, it's going to come back to this. Because wherever and whenever we see this truth either neglected or ignored or rejected, that man alone is created in the image of God, where we see this pushed aside or push down, there will be a depreciation of life. There will be a, a depreciating of the value of life and an erosion of any sense of human life being sacred. And what will happen as that happens, it will be an increase of violence in various forms including abortion, euthanasia, and other things. So where this goes away, this, this understanding of fundamental truth that man is created in the image of God. If you have a society that doesn't know that and believe that, then what grounds do they have for safeguarding life? So it comes back 
in many ways to this. And, and we're seeing this, are we not, in our own society? A society that has by and large abandoned this truth and thus does not regard the sanctity of human life. We must also carefully consider the implications of this doctrine, of this reality that, that we all are made in the image of God. There's, there's many very practical implications and applications, and I'll just briefly say a few things. First, Murray, as he puts it, says, an assault upon man's life is a virtual assault upon the life of God. So when you assault somebody made in the image of God, it is a virtual assault upon God himself. Think carefully about that. Calvin says much the same thing. I was looking in his commentary on Genesis chapter 9, and he says that no one can be injurious to his brother without wounding God himself. Were this doctrine that were made in the image of God deeply fixed in our minds, we should be much more reluctant than we are to inflict injuries. So such is the sanctity of life. Even to wound another person without just cause is a serious offense. Now there's a final text that clearly proclaims the principle of the sanctity of life. And, and here we're going to move beyond Genesis. Does anybody have an idea of another text that declares the sanctity of life? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Very simple. You can quote it. I'm pretty sure all of you from memory can quote this, but it's so important. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. That's grounded in the sanctity of life. That proclaims the sanctity of life that God would say, that he would declare, you shall not murder. So we have to consider that as well as one of the foundations, the biblical foundations for the sanctity of life. The command is based on the sanctity of life. So there we have just a very brief survey of the biblical foundations of the sanctity of life. Keep these things in mind as we come to these issues. What I want us to do here, I think that says 1031, but I think we need a new battery. So is that about right, 1030? Okay. I want to think just a little further about the death penalty for murder. Now, I'm just going to trace out a few things here, and I'm not sure we might next time dive into this a little bit more before we move on to some of the other issues. I'm not sure. But I want us to look again at the key text. So Genesis 9 and verse 6, we're going to think a little bit further about the death penalty for murder. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now let me ask you here, by man his blood shall be shed, is that a command or a statement of fact? Somewhat of a trick question, but not really. It could, if we take this in complete isolation, it actually could be both. If we're just looking at the Hebrew construction, 
This could either be a statement of a command, the murderer's life shall, must be taken by man, or it might just be a statement of fact, more or less saying all who live by the sword will die by the sword. Those who are murderous will find that in the providence of God, eventually it will come back around to them and they too will die by man's hand. And we find that often that is the case. But if we step back and take the broader context, I think we must conclude that what we have here is not just a statement of fact, but more than that, a requirement given to man by God. So we have a command here. So let's just look briefly at the context right up to verse 5. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So clearly God's not just talking about his providential dealings and working it out that a murderer, his car flips, slips on ice, hits a tree, and is killed. But that specifically, the context is from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of of man. And then if we look down further again at verse 6, verse 6 then, for in the image of God he made man, gives the reason for that requirement of requiring the life of the murderer at the hand of his brother. Now the wider context in the Bible, we would turn to something like Numbers 35. In Numbers 35, we find a clear requirement that a murderer shall be put to death by the avenger of blood himself. So there it's, it's very clear. So all of this to say that we do have a command here and not just a statement of fact when God says by man, his blood shall be shed. Now one objection, and there are several objections that people can make and it's good to answer those objections. We're not going to do all of that today or, or maybe even ever. But one objection might be, well, that was then, but this is now. That was the old covenant, but we live under the new covenant and surely under the new covenant, the death penalty for murder has been done away with. Now, under the old covenant, in the Mosaic law, the death penalty was instituted for other things. I didn't know the exact number, but as I was studying this, came up with, or one man did, 18 different offenses for which the death penalty was exacted under the old covenant, including fornication, adultery, rebellion against parents. So we asked the question, how is the death penalty for murder any different from those? Let me just put that to you. How is the death penalty for murder different? These crimes eventually make their way back to a desecration of the image of God. But what, what exactly, what is it that sets apart 
this as something that would be abiding and not abrogated. Yeah. You talking about Exodus 20, the law? The Mosaic law? Yeah, I mean, we, we looked at that briefly. Yeah. So you're saying that because of the time that this was given, sort of like when we make an argument for the perpetuity of the fourth commandment, for, for keeping the day, that was given before. Mosaic law, yeah. So I think she's touching on basically one of the key points. And Daryl was touching on the other key point. And that is, there's no other, you look at the other death penalty commands. You will not find, really for any other command, you will not find the grounds being for in the image of God man was made. That's unique. And then also what Marie was touching on is when this was given. So we look at the reason, the reason being that it's because it is a violation of the life of one created in the image of God. So it sets apart murder in an entirely different category. And also just common sense, we know that murder is different from all these other crimes. It's the ultimate crime that we could commit against another. It's irreversible in this life. So it is a very grave, a very serious crime. And also, the reason given for man was created in the image of God, is that still valid today? Yeah, that's... that's under the old covenant, under the new covenant, that forever remains valid. So if the reason for the death penalty is still valid, that you and I are made in the image of God, does that not give the strongest argument for the abiding relevance of the death penalty for murder? So I'm just tracing this out. There's other things to think about. Uh, what we also find is that the death penalty for murder is confirmed in a variety of ways in the New Testament. And one of those is the teaching about the sword given to civil magistrates. And the sword given to them in order to bear it, in order to use it, as God's minister. So you would look at Romans 13, 4. You would look at 1 Peter 2, 14. We're not going to look at those, but those are the texts that you would look at. And are we to imagine that this sword that is given to civil magistrates to be used against evildoers, that this doesn't involve capital punishment? So we see that it is confirmed, the death penalty, at least for murder. That would be a whole other discussion to talk about. Are there other crimes for which it is good and right and just to bring about the death penalty? That's separate. I think at least we have to say for murder, the death penalty remains a requirement from God. But the sword has not been given to us, but to the civil magistrates. I think we have just a, a few minutes, and I, I want to conclude uh, with 
with reading something, if, if I may read a little bit longer quote, because I want to conclude with a glorious gospel application. And we might have a minute or two for some questions or comments, but a glorious gospel application as we are thinking about the sanctity of life. So we've, we've surveyed some of the biblical basis. We've just traced out very, very briefly some of the arguments for the abiding relevance, validity of the death penalty for murder. But here I want to close with a gospel application. And I'm going to read from Murray. He says, The sanctity of human life resides in the fact that man was made in the divine image. This sanctity underlines the prohibition of murder, and it validates and necessitates capital punishment for the crime of murder. A close relation exists between the law of God as it pertains to the preservation and taking of life and the redemptive provisions of grace. What does redemption secure? No one word sums it up better than the word life. Our Lord said, I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. And I give to them eternal life that they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. The sum of the gospel is that grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is quite unnecessary to multiply the evidence. It is all pervasive in the New Testament. Sin has brought death. Redemptive grace brings life. And this life consists in fellowship with God. It will reach its consummation when the last enemy, death, will be destroyed and the people of God will enjoy the full fruition of participation in Christ's resurrection life when this corruptible will have put on incorruption and this mortal will have put on immortality. It is the sanctity of life that gives meaning to the redemptive process and all its phases. Life is forfeit by sin and redemption is the redemption of forfeit life. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And therefore those to whom he is God and who are his people must attain to the resurrection of the dead, to the fullness of life as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I think we have a minute or two if there's a question or comment. Yeah, I think that would be <coughs> an application certainly of the sixth command, you shall not murder, would be self-preservation. I mean, so self-murder obviously being the ultimate uh, crime against yourself, but I think it would include as well other abuses of ourself or neglecting our own health and well-being. I think we have to consider we too are created in the image of God. I don't know if that's what you're touching on, but I think that's an application of this discussion. Yeah. As as the person is is being, let's say, their rights are being improved upon. Are you talking about self defense, maybe? 
I mean, that, I think that comes into this discussion. This could be a huge discussion that would include, is self-defense good and right? I'm not a pacifist, and I don't think we should be. But there are many Christians who, who are and, and believe that Jesus taught that self-defense would be wrong, that we ought not to, you know, that there's not, there's no such thing as just war and that we ought not to, you know, that's a whole other discussion too. But um, yeah, I think these would all be um, issues to discuss coming out of this, this fundamental truth, the sanctity of life. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another one of the confirmations in the New Testament that says, okay, Paul here understood that there were some crimes that were worthy of death. And even if he had committed it, he said, I don't object to dying. So add that to the other verses I mentioned about the sword. Yeah. Appreciate that. Anything else? I think our time, yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and we may discuss that because you say, all right, we live in an unjust society with imperfect judges and rulers and if we say, and I've not looked at the st statistics, but someone says, well, how often is the death penalty unjustly exacted? And, and therefore, should we even do it? Can we even do it? So that argument is made. And um, without going down uh, any rabbit trails, um, no, I'm not going to do it. I had a thought, but I'm not going to do it. So uh, the kids are waiting for us, I think. One more quick comment. Mm. Also, with um, juveniles and all that, like, you know, uh, is, do you think there's any thing in the scripture? I guess that's kind of what your comment was just talking about, like, a certain age yeah. of accountability, maybe, where, okay, well, uh, th that you have to somehow uh, nuance Genesis 9 6. I'd have to think about that. I haven't. Yeah, that's a good, uh, again, so you see how complex just this issue maybe that seems simple as you work it out, but these are good things, so we'll end with that. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for its clarity. Pray you would write it on our hearts and give us an understanding of these important matters and give us wisdom to navigate life in this world and these complicated issues unto your glory. Amen.